What do you see when you look at your city? What do you see when you look at your church? What do you see when you look at yourself? Do you see nothing but broken piles of junk and rubble? Because when God looks at you, he sees a future and a hope. The Bible tells the story of Nehemiah, a man whose heart broke when he saw the ruined walls of Jerusalem. But in that rubble, he also saw hope. He saw the tools to rebuild. It's time to see our city the way God sees it. It's time to see our churches the way God sees them. It's time to see ourselves the way God sees us. It's time to rebuild. Good morning. My name's Jack Hoy, and I want to welcome you to Seacoast Church. Whether you're here in Mount Pleasant, in one of our venues, one of our campuses or network churches, or you're joining us online, we're glad you've chosen to spend a portion of your Sunday morning with us. Now, I know I'm not a familiar face to everyone, and let's just be honest and admit that the NFL season so far has made us all a little bit nervous about replacements. I'm actually director of operations here at Seacoast. I've been coming to the church for almost 20 years, so I'm pretty familiar with the rules. But just want to reassure you that if we get stuck, if we hit a point of controversy, I've got a half dozen guys who are going to come up, confer with me, we'll just stop the message, and, um, and then we'll make a completely random decision and go on. <laughs> Our topic today is turning dreams into reality. And I'd like to begin with a question. Have you ever reflected on how much time you spend anticipating, focused on the future rather than the present? Now, the weather isn't quite the center of attention that it used to be when most of us were farmers. Now it's more of a conversational crutch. You can always break an awkward silence in this part of the country with one of two options, either hot, huh? Or hasn't it been nice to have a break in the weather lately? Of course, one nice thing about the weather is it's not controversial. I've never had anybody yell at me because I thought it might rain tomorrow. We can't affect the weather, but most of the time, when we're thinking about the future, it's because we want to shape the future in a certain way. We plan our schedules. Every appointment we make is a future event that we're lining up with a goal or a purpose in mind. Even if that goal is just to have fun or relax. We plan our finances. We try to figure out how we're going to pay for cars, for homes, for children's educations, for retirement. Households plan. Companies do it. Churches plan and budget. Cities, states, nations, all of them plan and, and, and budget. And it's needed. But if you've ever done any financial planning, you know how often things turn out differently than you'd expected. Now think about how we look forward spiritually. The whole concept of faith is that it's directed to the future, to what we believe about what lies ahead. But what we can know spiritually is limited too. Paul once wrote that all of our knowledge is but a poor reflection in a mirror. And the kind of mirror that they had in Paul's day was not glass with silvering behind it. It was polished bronze. So if you've ever tried to look at your reflection in a candlestick, that's the reflection he's talking about. We all want to find God's direction for our lives. But how much can we really know? Doesn't God call us to ministries? Yes, he does. 
How about God's path for us? Can we know that? Well, that's actually more complicated, and we're going to talk about that today. This is the third week in a series that we're calling Rebuild. It's a study of the book of Nehemiah, and that book begins with a call from God. In week one, we saw how Nehemiah learned about the dire straits that Jerusalem was in, and Jerusalem was his ancestral city. His heart was broken by what he heard. He began to pray, and as he prayed, he developed a deep desire to rebuild the city. Last week, Greg took us through the first 10 verses of chapter 2, where God opened the door in kind of in a terrifying way, if you heard Greg's message, for Nehemiah to ask the king for permission to rebuild the city and for resources to complete the job. The verses we're studying this week are really the pivot point of the book, where Nehemiah's call to action confronts reality. Verse 11 of chapter 2 begins with these words, I went to Jerusalem. And the rest of chapter 2 tells us how Nehemiah set the project in motion. Chapter 3 tells us about the team of people who worked with him to turn this dream into reality. So how do we do that? How do we turn dreams into reality? Nehemiah 2 verses 11 and 12, they're in your outline sheet. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. Now, don't you think that's interesting? So God's given him this task. He's sure of that. In fact, he's so sure that he's really staked his life on it. He's given up his role at the right hand of the king, and he's moved to this remote, dusty outpost of the Persian Empire. He's given up a job that really had a lot of benefits and and, and great financial rewards for the proverbial dollar-a-year job. And he doesn't tell anybody why he's done it. He's just joined a community that is going to be greatly blessed by the task that's been given to him, and he doesn't tell them. Now, why not? Because he doesn't know enough yet. He had a call. He was to rebuild Jerusalem walls. But there were a couple of major unknowns that affected what the project would look like. So, first of all, this is a place he'd never been, and it had been destroyed almost 150 years ago. 150 years. Now, if you're familiar with your American history, you know that Sherman and his army burned the city of Columbia, South Carolina, at the, near the end of the American Civil War, or the War of Northern Aggression, if you prefer that term. <laughs> About 150 years ago. Now, imagine that Columbia had never been rebuilt. Some of you are thinking that's probably an idea they should have considered. <laughs> but not me. I like Columbia as much as you can. <laughs> well, anyway, so let's imagine Columbia had never been rebuilt. And your ancestors from hundreds of years ago were from Columbia. You've never been there, but you hear about the ruins of the city and your heart is touched and you decide that God wants you to rebuild that place. Can you imagine what you would face coming into a ruin that had been there for 150 years? Second, we often think about Nehemiah and his job as as rebuilding walls that were already there. That's not exactly true. Let me show you what I mean. Jerusalem became the capital of Israel when David captured it early in his reign. And it became so identified with David that it was actually called the city of David. 
Now, David City is shown on the screen, a very small enclosure, really just a, a fortress, about 10 or 11 acres on the ridge of a hill. And the reason it was located where it was is that there was a spring of water there, the Gihon Spring. And in those days, if you had a spring of water on a hilltop, that was a great place for a fort. So very small city. And in fact, we've superimposed it on the uh, Long Point campus here in Mount Pleasant to show you just how small it is. It would fit comfortably into either one of our parking lots. Now, David's son Solomon was a great builder, and he expanded the city tremendously. Built the first temple, as most of us know, built a large palace complex. By the time Solomon's reign was ended, Jerusalem was more than twice the size that it had been during his father's reign. And after a couple of hundred years, again, the capital has been in Jerusalem all this time, the city continued to grow, until by the time of Hezekiah, Jerusalem was a much larger city. About 25,000 people lived there. And this is the city, basically, that the Babylonians destroyed and burned. As we're going to see in a minute, this was not the city that Nehemiah rebuilt. So, faced with all of these unknowns, what does Nehemiah do? Look at verses 13 and 16. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been burned down, and its gates, which had burned by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. What's his first step? He goes out and gets first-hand information. He makes a circuit of the walls, or does his best to, because there's so much rubble there that he actually can't get through. Then he goes outside the city, down into the Kidron Valley below, and studies the walls from that angle, the angle that an attacker would have. Because after all, the purpose of building these walls is to have a defense for the city of Jerusalem. Only at that point does he come to the leaders of the city and talk to them about what God has put in his heart. Verses 17 and 18. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me, and what the king had said to me. So, to turn a dream into reality takes understanding the facts. You need to study the resources you have and the obstacles you face. There are difficulties that are going to be inherent in the task itself. In addition, there may be opposition. As Nehemiah faced, we see in verse 19, the leaders of the surrounding nations all opposed the work that he was going to do because they realized that if he strengthened the position of the Jews, he was weakening their position accordingly. If you're trying to do something good, you will have opposition. You also need a plan. You're going to rebuild walls. Fine. What height are they going to be? What width are they going to be? How, is the, how are the walls going to interact with the terrain? Where are you going to put the angles, the gates, the towers? What's the defensive strategy that you're trying to implement? Now, the text doesn't address these questions, but Nehemiah had to figure all of them out 
because he had a large team. And everyone needed to be on the same page, working in the same direction, with the same vision. Now, as I said before, the city that Nehemiah rebuilt was much smaller than the city that had been destroyed. It appears that he decided that there were two things that had to be enclosed, the temple and the water supply. And the two oval loops, basically, enclose each one. So that was what he did. He built a city as small as possible while still enclosing those two things in a single area. Why did he do that? Because not enough people lived in the city. It doesn't do any good to have extensive walls that you can't defend. In fact, even the city that Nehemiah enclosed was too big for the population. Later on in the book, we'll read that they actually had to draw lots from people who lived in the countryside to see who would have to move to Jerusalem so that they could have a large enough population for the city. See, a calling from God is often just a first step. And first steps, as we know, are baby steps. The hard part comes when we explore what that call really means. And we begin to live it out, to walk through its implications, hour by hour, day by day. Sometimes it seems that God sets us in motion, and then he wants us to find our own way. I often hear people talk about hearing from God. I think sometimes we want to hear from God in areas where we're very unlikely to hear from him. Some people seem to think they should be seeking specific guidance from God for every step they take. I agree that would be nice. And I agree that God speaks to his people. No question about that. But I wonder if it happens as often as some of us think. Jacob was the patriarch of the nation of Israel. In fact, God renamed him Israel and the whole nation took its name from him. He was a man who walked with God, a man who heard from God. The Bible tells us that Jacob lived for 137 years, and in that time, he heard from God four times. Now, in contrast to that, I was exchanging some emails with a friend of mine last week. Leads a business, and he was facing a tough decision, and he was kind of using me as a sounding board. And three different times in the course of one week, I got an email from him that began something like, I sense God is leading me to, or I think God is telling me to, and each one of those three times, it was pointing in a diametrically opposed direction. Now, this is a godly man, and it's a, he's a man I respect. And I understand his dilemma. He had conflicting feelings about a tough decision, and it was just pulling him apart. But I think he was looking in the wrong place for guidance. Every emotional impulse that we have is not the voice of God. If you're trying to figure out which of the conflicting voices in your head is God, just assume that none of them are. They're all you. <laughs> Seriously, that's, that's not how God is going to guide you. Now, I'm not trying to minimize the importance of walking with God as we go through our lives. We're instructed to do that. In fact, Jesus tells us that we need to do that. We have God's Spirit living within us, teaching us, shaping us, do I feel that God guides me? Yes. But it's almost always guidance that relates to the moment I'm in. Not guidance for decisions or information about the future. 
In Ephesians 5, we're told, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Great. We'd all like to understand what the Lord's will is. What is it? Live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. When I'm walking with God in the course of a day, and and I don't do that as successfully as I would like, I'm I'm not as consistent in in, um, walking with God as I want to be or as I seek to be. But when I'm able to do that, I often sense him prompting me to reach out to someone in love. I find I'm I'm more sensitive to people around me who may be struggling with something. I'm much more likely to be kind to the retail associate who's struggling with a slow computer system as she's trying to help me. See, I don't see a lot in the Bible about hearing from God as a way of helping us make decisions. But I see a lot of emphasis in the Bible on wisdom. Psalm 111 tells us that reverence for the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All wisdom is rooted in the realization that God is over everything and that he wants us to serve him with our hearts and minds and souls. But he wants us to go on in wisdom. Proverbs 4.7 says, Wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom. Though it cost all you have, get understanding. Proverbs 3, verses 13 and 15 says, Blessed is the man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. And ironically, I think, one verse that's often quoted as a teaching on how we can count on God's guidance in our lives is James 1.5. If any of you lacks a voice from God, no. If any of you lacks wisdom, Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. God wants to guide us by enabling us to walk in the path of wisdom. So, why doesn't God give us answers? It's because he wants us to grow up. Now, sometimes we think that growing in spiritual maturity means growing ever closer to God. And that's sort of true, but it's also kind of the opposite of the truth. I have a good relationship with my mom. In some ways, I would say we're closer now than we've ever been because each year brings more shared experiences and more shared memories. Each year there are more passages in life that each of us has in common. But am I as close to her now as I was when I was a newborn and and literally my entire conscious life was lived in her arms when I couldn't do anything for myself and she did everything for me? Am I I as close to her now as I was then? I don't think you could say so. And yet, none of us would say it's a bad thing to grow up. That's what we want for our children. We want them to be independent. That's what we're raising them for. It's a joy to see them take steps forward, to see them begin to learn their potential, to discern their gifts, to figure out what path they want to carve for themselves in life. Any parent knows those are good steps, even if they're steps away from us. And independence is what our children are stretching for, too, all the years that they're growing up. Uh, My wife, Penny, and I have three children, and uh, our youngest is uh, is our daughter, Park. I remember her first day of school. It was, you know, one of these two-morning-a-week supervised playtimes. But in her mind, she was going to school, and she was very excited. 
So the boys at that time, we, we lived in a neighborhood where they were in elementary school and they walked to their school. So got up in the morning, had breakfast, I went to work, the boys headed out to school. Penny got parked dressed, ready to go, and then hurried to get herself dressed and, and then went to get parked and put her in the car and take her to the preschool. Couldn't find her. Looked all through the house. Couldn't find her anywhere. Was starting to panic. And then kind of a light bulb went on for her head. She tore out the front door and went sprinting up the street and saw her three-year-old walking down the sidewalk about 200 yards ahead. So she runs to catch up with her and Park hears her as she's getting closer and turned around and threw her arms up and said, get away, mom. Get away, mom. I'm a school kid now. I am not your little girl anymore. I have my own path in life and I am marching down it. All right? Maturity is what God wants for us. For a person to mature, his parents, whether they're his earthly parents or his spiritual father, need to create distance. Now, a baby, if she realizes that her parents aren't in the room, will begin to panic, right? How would you feel if your 16-year-old did the same thing? Now, how do you get them to the point of maturity where that's not a problem? By leaving them. By leaving them. Gradually, over time, in appropriate ways, adapted to their maturity. So, does that mean that as I mature, God will guide me less? Well, that's an interesting thing to think about, isn't it? So, to turn a dream into reality takes understanding the facts. The second thing that stands out about this passage to me is that to turn a dream into reality takes everyone. It's interesting that Nehemiah tells us relatively little about the wall that he's building, but he tells us at great length about his team. And to do that, he takes us on a complete circuit of the walls. He begins at the northeast corner near the temple and takes us counterclockwise all the way around. He tells us who's responsible for every inch of the wall. Excuse me. And let's look at Nehemiah's team. There are 40 people who are named individually, and there are many more who aren't named. Some interesting things about these people. Not one of them is a builder, or a stonemason, or a carpenter, or an architect. Instead, we have priests, Levites, merchants, goldsmiths, even a perfume maker. Shalom, the son of Halohesh, enlisted his daughters. Some of the builders led large teams on major projects says that Hanan and the residents of Zenoa rebuilt the valley gate and 500 yards of wall. And if you look in the wall there, the, the whole southwest corner of the city was rebuilt by that one team. But of a lot of the people, it's simply said that they repaired the section in front of their house. Now, this wouldn't appear to be a group with a passion for building. But it didn't matter, because there was a big, important task to be done, and everyone was needed. A church is like that. It's made up of all different kinds of people, and everyone is needed. Paul Jesse, painter during the week, parking lot ministry on the weekend. 
Hi, my name is Pam. During the week, I am a retired teacher, so I babysit for my grandchildren and my niece's child. But on the weekends, I'm a greeter at Seacoast. Good morning. How are you? Good to see you. Hi, I'm Laura Bates, and I'm a pediatric nurse practitioner. On weekends, I serve in Kids Coast in the two- and three-year-old classrooms. My name is Hunter. Uh, during the week, I help out with the Charleston County Rescue Squad. And on the weekends, I am one of the tech coordinators here in the zone. During the week, I'm a student. And on the weekends, I serve here in the zone as a small group leader for the sixth grade girls. Hi, my name is Mike. I'm an engineer during the week. And I serve on the video production team in the weekends. I'm Kathy Pyle, and I'm a fifth grade teacher at a school here in Mount Pleasant, and I get the privilege of serving here in One by One every Sunday. Those are just a few of the many people who serve here at our Long Point Road campus. There are hundreds every weekend, here and at every campus in the Seacoast Network, serving us, teaching our children, managing technology systems, many other tasks. I'm grateful for each one, and I hope you are too. And, and I hope you'll take the time today to thank someone who's serving at your campus. Now, think about this. What makes us special members of the body of Christ is one thing. It is not whether we are in leadership. It is not our skill set. It is one thing. It is the attitude with which we approach our task. Among his entire team, Nehemiah calls out one person for his attitude. In chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Next to him, Baruch, son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section, from the entrance to Eliashib's house to the end of it. Everyone worked, but Baruch worked zealously. In other words, he worked with all his heart. Now, Baruch did not have a big section of wall. Very small section. In fact, we're not sure exactly where it was in the circuit. So he didn't lead a big team. And he wasn't doing high skill work like setting gates in place. But he did his work with all his heart. Ecclesiastes 10.9 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. And Paul echoes those words in the New Testament book of Colossians. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. To turn a dream into reality takes understanding the facts, it takes everyone, and it takes everything you've got. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read a book like Nehemiah, here's a guy who had a calling of world historical importance. 2,500 years later, we're still reading about what he did. It's hard for me to relate to that. Or, you know, I think about the Apostle Paul. He introduces himself in Romans 1.1 as Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. And the word that's translated called there is a word that implies this special anointing for a special purpose. 
But that word is almost never used in the New Testament. Now, in our English Bible, we see the word called a lot. But almost always, it's a different word that's being translated. It's a much simpler, more modest word. It's the word you would use if you were saying in Greek, Mary called her husband Joe and called him to take out the trash. We began today by noting how often and how hard we try to figure out the future. In spiritual terms, we talk about wanting to know God's will for our lives. And we miss the point. In my experience, if you want to know God's will for your life, I think what he'd say to you is, tell you what, here's my will for this afternoon. You do that, and we'll go from there. Some people do get a call with a capital C, a special anointing, a special assignment. But it's likely to come after many steps of obedience in following God's quiet beckoning. And sometimes the highest calling is the lowest task. I have a couple of very good friends who have been in a, involved in a ministry for over 30 years. It's a very small ministry, very obscure. They're working with people who are poor, and so it has no financial rewards. They've lived in poverty most of, most of their married life. They are two of the most gifted, hardworking, godly people I know. So why in the world would God assign them to work in a hole? I think it's because he could trust them to do it. It's not hard if God calls you to a job that has great financial rewards and, and a lot of influence and a lot of recognition. But the job that has no rewards and no recognition here on earth, that's a much different thing. Jesus said that the last will be first, and the first will be last. And I think of those friends whenever I hear that verse. Whatever your hand finds to do, that's God's will for you. Do it with all your might. That's his will for your life. We don't like a road map so we could see where we're going and how to get there. But God doesn't give us a map. Instead, what he gives us is a guide. And he says, stay close to the guide. John 15, 5 says, If a man remains in me, <clears throat> and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. See, if he gave us a map, we wouldn't need the guide. We wouldn't have to stay close to him. But staying close to the guide is everything. It's far more important than the path itself. Let me tell you a story. It's kind of the story of this axe. And it's a strange story because it's rooted in two memories that I have of a day when I was four years old. And I remember how old I was because I know where we were living at the time. So one Saturday, my Uncle Ted came over to our house with this young family, a couple named Don and Joan Gregory. They had two young children. As I said, I was four, and I had three younger siblings at the time, so there were six little kids. And Ted and Mr. and Mrs. Gregory and my mom all went out for the day, and my dad stayed home to babysit the six little kids. Well, it's a tribute to his organizational skills and his authoritative presence that we all went down for naps without incident. We all slept, and I was the first one to wake up. And for some reason, a few of us were sleeping up in the attic. We lived in this big, rambling old house at the time. And um, I remember coming down the attic steps. Now, I don't know about you, but most of my early childhood memories are fragmentary. 
Have you ever been in a room where someone takes a flash photograph and you have this stark image and there's no context before and no context afterwards? That's what most of these memories are like for me. There's just this image that I can see or maybe a, a couple of words that I can remember. And sometimes I understand why that imprinted in my mind and sometimes I have no idea. Well, anyway, the thing that imprints on me from this first memory is the attic steps. I remember the attic steps. They were steep and narrow, and they ended in a doorway. So I was walking down the steps, and my dad came around through the doorway, and he was holding my shoes. He must have been around the corner listening for the sound of small children waking up. Well, anyway, I, I had something wrong with my legs at that time. I think I was knock-kneed or something. So I had to wear these big, heavy, clunky, corrective shoes that like laced up to my shoulders, you know? And uh, so he's, I sat down on the steps and he knelt down and was putting my shoes on and lacing them up and said something like, Dad, am I going to have to wear these shoes forever? And he said, no, no, they're, they're helping your legs grow straight and pretty soon you won't have to wear them anymore at all. That's my first memory. Now, why in the world would I remember that? There was something different about my dad something I, I didn't have a category for. It was, he was happy, but it wasn't happiness. It was quieter. It was different somehow. I guess I would describe it as kind of a, a lightness of spirit. So, later on, the rest of the adults came home, and I was playing somewhere, and, and I heard all this noise. So I came running to see what the noise was about, and I ran into the kitchen, and all the adults were happy and excited, and all of them were talking at once. That's my second memory. Forty years later, about ten years ago, I was talking to my Uncle Ted. And somehow the topic of Don and Joan Gregory came up. And I told him about my two memories. I said, I remember the day you brought him to our home in Altoona. And he said, didn't anyone ever tell you what happened that day? I knew by this time the importance that Don Gregory had in my Uncle Ted's life. Ted was a Marine. He fought in Korea, saw heavy action, had friends of his killed right beside him. And it was one of those overwhelming times when you're face-to-face -face with, what is the meaning of my life? What am I here for? And while he was serving in Korea, his Marine buddy, Don Gregory, led him to saving faith in Christ. And Ted was never the same. The war ended, Ted and Don came back to the States, both of them got married, Ted started a business career, and Don Gregory began to prepare for the mission field. He and his wife Joan were going to go serve in this Stone Age tribe in the island of New Guinea in the South Pacific. And they had raised all of the monthly support needs that they had to have to be in the field, but they hadn't raised their outgoing expenses. Not only the transportation to get to the field, but also all the gear that they would need to buy in order to live in a Stone Age tribe for four years. They were having no success. And actually, that was why they came to our town that day. They were visiting some churches to see if they could raise that support. They struck out all day, came home very discouraged. While they were out visiting churches and the little kids were sleeping, my dad was thinking about their situation and praying. And he decided that he wanted to give them all the money they would need to go to the field. And he had just enough. It was basically his life savings at that point in his life. And he wasn't a kid. He was 33 or 34. Money he'd been saving for a down payment for a house. So when the Gregories came back, 
He cut my mom off to the side, told her what he wanted to do. She was all for it. So they told them, the Gregories, that they wanted to give them the funds they needed to go to the field. Hence the noise and the excitement and the happiness in the kitchen that I discovered, which must have been right after they told them. Hence the lightness and spirit that I sensed in my dad as he was lacing my shoes. This axe. An axe like this is the most valued possession that a man can have in a tribe like the Gregories were serving. It's more valuable than this house. And one of the men that Don Gregory led to Christ, when he heard what my parents had done, gave Don this axe so that he could give it to my parents. It was in my home all the years I was growing up, but I never knew its story. My dad passed away just a few weeks ago, and I've been reflecting a lot on his life. He achieved a lot of success in the course of his life. He was, a, he was a prominent CEO. He was very influential in his community. He was a leader in his church. And, you know, we tend to judge success by those kinds of external things. But I think he was a success on that day, on the day that he gave his life savings so that a young couple could take the good news of Jesus Christ to some people on the other side of the world who had never heard his name. I think he was a success on that day. As Ted was filling in the blanks in my story, he said, and you know, after that is when your dad's career really began to take off. Because God blessed him, God certainly did bless my dad. But he also grew my dad. And I think the decision that he made that day propelled him forward. It enabled him to think differently forever after about what he could do when confronted by a challenge. How much freedom he really had in the decisions that he faced. What he was able to do through Christ, who strengthened him. I don't know what you're praying about these days, but let me encourage you. Do not pray for an easier life. Pray to be a stronger person. Do not pray for God to tell you what to do. Pray for wisdom to discern what to do and for the courage to do it. Do not pray for a smooth path in life, but pray for the strength to overcome the obstacles in your path. Then, rebuilding your wall will be no miracle, but you will be the miracle. You you will be the miracle. And you will be amazed every day at the richness of the life that God has given you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to open it, to learn what you have to say to us. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be gathered as a group to worship you and and to reflect on what a great and awesome God you are. We ask, Lord, that you would guide our steps in life, not by telling us the future, but by strengthening us to walk side by side with you. Help us, Lord, to walk wisely, faithfully, to live lives of love, 
when we consider how much you've done for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.